0: This is Other Voices. We're listening to varied views from local people who might otherwise not be heard. I'm Melissa Hale Spencer, editor of the Altamont Enterprise, which focuses on Albany County, New York. You can reach me at mhs I'm talking to two people who are passionate about helping women veterans. Both of them are veterans themselves. Raymond Tees of Gilderland is a Vietnam vet with a purple heart. He wants to make sure veterans aren't treated the way he was when he came home from war. Christine Rem, a nurse and retired Army colonel, has spent a lifetime preparing for the role. She has now created for herself, helping women veterans. She purchased the Victorian row house in South Troy that had belonged to her grandparents and refurbished it, paying for much of it herself to serve homeless veterans. The first woman took up residence this month. We have with us two people who have really committed themselves to this cause. One lives in Gilderland. He's a Vietnam War veteran, Raymond Teese, and he read a story in our paper about what we thought was a new initiative to provide housing for mothers who are veterans and don't have a place to live. And we found out from him that Colonel Christine Rem, a retired colonel, she's correcting me, yes. Um, and I had to ask her which title to use, because she has so many. She also has a doctorate degree in nursing. But she, out of her own heart and pocket, uh, has funded a house in troy that just this month is accepting its first female veteran. so welcome to both of you and my first question for each of you to answer in your own way is why is it that you're so passionate about helping female veterans
1: well uh, i've been in the vfw uh, since 2006 and seeing what's going on and meeting some people that uh, are veterans that are female uh, and some of the things that they went through uh, it just gave me uh, Vietnam veterans uh, are one of the first groups that uh, when we came back were not treated like previous veterans. And the Vietnam veteran uh, said, we won't let our future veterans be treated the same way. So when I saw what was happening that the VA or anybody else we're not giving the women veterans enough uh, care. It just you know goes on with everything else. Why should they not be treated the same as the men? More and more of them in our recent past uh wars, combat situations are becoming injured, or uh, I was actually shocked when I heard about the sexual abuse that women veterans have, and the more I read about it, the worse it is. Uh, So with that and my upbringing, uh, from my father and mother on down, it goes without saying that uh, this is one of the first uh, places, and it's the first in the Albany area that are supporting women veterans, and we need more of it.
0: So, thank you. Christine, what about you? You are (laughs) both a nurse and a retired colonel. I'm just interested in kind of your life's path, certainly it's not unusual for a woman to be a nurse, but um, to be a colonel, I, I'm very impressed. What, like, what came first in your life? How, how, What path led you to where you are now?
2: Well, surprise, this might surprise you, but um, I didn't join the Army Reserve until I was 32 years old. And so I put 30 years in. Um, And I got an extension to remain in longer than the mandatory age, except for generals, uh, which is 60. And I was allowed to stay in till age 62, four months, so that I could get my 30 years of service. So I joined later in life. I wasn't, um, so I'm, I'm a little bit different than some people's stereotypical idea of what a woman veteran is. And I had already been a nurse. And most of my career had been uh, caring for women and children. I um, I worked for um, many years at Samaritan Hospital in Troy in labor and delivery, uh, Ellis Hospital in Schenectady uh, in uh, labor and delivery, and then um, over um, primary care, but also women in pediatric uh, outpatient clinics for St. Peter's. So I had a lot of experience with women and children. My... Um, Education was very slow. I, I was originally a three-year, old-fashioned nursing school graduate. I graduated from Samaritan Hospital School of Nursing, went in when I was 17 years old. And... Um, uh, didn't begin to work on my higher education until after joining the military. So very slowly, part-time, got my bachelor's degree, very slowly, got my master's degree. I originally wanted to be a nurse midwife, but I also had joined the, the reserves. And why in your 30s did you do why that? Did, because at that time, I was a, um, going through a divorce, and I was a single mother of three sons. And I was predominantly working weekends because nurses can make more money on weekends. So it was easier to get a babysitter on weekends. And when I would go into work, there would be nursing journals on the desk. And it would always be at join the Army Reserve, join the Navy Reserve, you know, join the Air Force Reserve. And you can go once a month. I was working every weekend a month. So you could go one weekend a month, and you could make four days pay. And then you'll do two weeks active duty, and um, you'll have, you know, opportunities, blah, blah, blah. And so I thought, oh, I could do one weekend and get four days pay, and then three other weekends. And I had grown up during the Vietnam War, and I had always wanted to join the military. And my roommate, who was my roommate in nursing school, I almost joined the Air Force, Air Force with her in 1970. And um, I didn't. I, I married, my first husband was a Vietnam vet, and I married my first husband instead and um, started to have children. So I always had this, oh gee whiz, I wish that I had joined when this war was going on. And um, I didn't. So I always had that part of me, but they also engaged me with, you know, this go just on a weekend. And there was no wars going on when I joined in 1982. There were no wars going on. So um, once I got in the Army Reserve, I met my first real role model women, Diane, his neighbor, me, and one of them. She was um, a chief nurse at a time that when I was in the unit. And all these women had, you know, had advanced degrees in nursing. And I was like, and I was just really impressed with them. They really uh, affected me, and so um, I started to slow. I went back to school part time to get my bachelor's degree. Um, I had gone through a divorce from my first husband and met my second husband at the uh, at the Army Reserve, and um, he uh, worked for the laboratories in New York State Labs and um, had driven had, uh, pardon me, rode ambulance. And um, said I never went to college, or so I talked him into becoming a nurse, and <laughs> and there and there was a program at Samaritan at the time where it said spouses of children of employees could go to the school for free. So he went on an evening shift at New York State, and went two years at that time was two years nursing program at Samaritan, and continued to work, and I worked at Samaritan, and now would. And a couple years later, we were both registered nurses, so we started working on our bachelor's part-time. And um, after a, the bachelor's degree, my dream was to become a nurse midwife. But um, my husband... Um, well, I got deployed to Germany, which was the first time I went on active duty. And I worked OBGYN at the um, 67th Cache in Würzburg, Germany, supporting the big red one. And um, so I was... Uh, it's pretty, I'd never expected to go to a nurse and work as an OBGYN nurse, but then I really started with thinking, well, there's women in the military, not just spouses and stuff, but they, there's women, so there's women's care that has to be done. And um, when I came back from that first tour, um, my husband was diagnosed with throat cancer. He, um, he, was, he was treated at Sloan Kettering Hospital and was cancer-free, and um, it was a, a struggle, but he went back to work as a nurse. But it was right at the time that I was gonna become a midwife and I decided that it was better that I go into nursing administration, that that was probably a better path to get promoted in the military if I went into nursing administration. And there was a lot of uh, clinical time that you would have to dedicate um, away from your family to become a midwife, so I changed majors and I went into nurse administration got a master's degree, went into a second master's to finally get the mid midwifery right around the time that the World Trade Center went down. Now, at this point, the sand is going through the hourglasses. I'm much, much older at this point. I'm higher ranking. And um, I just knew that if if I was going to be a combat vet, it was going to be Something related to what happened with the World Trade Center, and so I, I, I just I volunteered for whatever whatever I could do, and um, of course the World Trade Center went down, and then I I don't know I think they invaded Iraq around 2003 or two I need mean, a history book, right. and um, that was when. Um, the Albany unit got called up, and we were deployed again towards spur Germany. The active duty nurses and doctors and everything associated with the hospital, they went to Iraq, and we came from the hospital, Albany and other areas in New York and New Jersey, and we went to to Germany. So we were backfill, but it was something. When I came back from Germany, um, I had been working with the chief nurse of the brigade in uh, Staten Island on an Army Reserve trauma training program in um, to help t- train up to get ready for the troops that were being deployed to war. And right around the same time, my husband was placed on active duty. Um, in AR Medcom, which is based in uh, Pinellas Park, Florida. And that's the major command for all the Army Reserve across the United States. And he managed the deployments of the doctors and the nurse anesthetists that that were deployed. So he went, now we're older now, we're in our 50s, okay? Children are grown, okay? And he he goes to uh, Florida to work for AR Medcom And um, I get this assignment to work on this Army Reserve Trauma Training Program um, as a clinical coordinator, which I coordinated down at Kings County Hospital in Brooklyn, Um, because the active duty use, Dade County in Miami, which has the highest rate of blunt force and penetrating injuries in the United States, and Kings County is, like, right up there, number two, and that's where you can get the most training in trauma. So I went to, I went to, um, I stayed at Fort Hamilton in Brooklyn and I ran this program at um, Kings County Hospital. Um, I was doing it part time in the reserve uh, for about six months, then I was on active duty for six months, and then uh, I got selected to cross, tr- to go as part of President Bush's surge into Iraq. And what that meant was that I went to, I left. Brooklyn, and I went to uh, Fort Bragg for six months of intensive training, three months to cross train us into civil affairs, and then three months of, of battle, you know, battle training. And um, during that time, and it was kind of crazy, and um I don't know if you know, but the Army had stood down its civil affairs unit. I'm not sure in what year, but many years ago. So when President Bush wanted to start to try to reno, uh, renovate Iraq, get ready to try to build it up, you know, all that part of trying to take the troops out and let them be on their own, um, there was no civil affairs unit in active duty. So they had to stand one up. So they brought us all in from the Army Reserve um, and the Department of Defense employees, you know, Air Force. We were a whole bunch of us there. So um, so I was almost getting to the end of my training and not sure what they were going to do with me when I got, uh, because of my rank, because I was higher ranking, at that point I was a lieutenant colonel, I got selected um, to be part of an embedded provincial reconstruction team with... um, the Department of State. So they selected 11 of us one night. Wow. And (laughs) and the next day we were on the Department of Defense, one of the Department of Defense's jets to Washington, D.C., to meet with President Bush and Condoleezza Rice and 11 Department of State folks. And we took two weeks of training in Washington, D.C. And I... There was one woman. There weren't. There were actually three. Three of us were women out of the eleven, and the rest were men. Um, But for the Department of State, there was only one woman, and all the rest were headed by men. But she selected me, and I joined her team. And uh, when we finished our training in Washington D.C., we went to Fort Bliss. For a quick reissue of our gear. And this time we were told we would only, we wouldn't have to carry a rifle. We would just have to carry a sidearm. And uh, so we got all new equipment, new sidearms, and all that. And I deployed and it was all very quick. And then from Fort Bliss, um, I met up, I went to Kuwait. I was in Kuwait for only like 24 hours. And from Kuwait, uh, we went to Baghdad, and then uh we had more training uh a lot of it was general Petraeus who was the the general at the time and uh, during that time um in during that period of that transition uh, a a lead person from USAID, USAID also joined the team so we were three person teams they divided us up in baghdad um First sent us for more training in Taji, and then at Taji, um, we were all split up and three teams, three three-person teams, were sent to Fallujah, and then um, in Fallujah, um, we were divided up where we one group stayed in Fallujah. I went to Ramadi, with my leader, and there was a and then way over in the corner was Al assam was the third place, and I was. Um, I worked with the, the women and children. So my whole life, at this point, my whole life is changing. Okay, yeah. remember I was going to go become a midwife. I had been, you know, a nurse manager and all kinds of things with women and children in my civilian life. I actually deployed to Germany and took care of women and children just like what I did in civilian life. But then I took a detour and I did this emergency training and now I'm in Iraq on an EPRT team. And so my the leader assigned me to health because I was a nurse. I had a master's degree at that time and assigned me to uh, education because I had a master's degree and then she assigned me to work with the women. So uh, our our job was to um, stand up a city council, try to help the Ramadi, or the whole county or the city. I, would, I call it a county, but I think they're... I forget the districts provinces. or provinces or something. But anyway, it's all it's all due to me. This was 12 years ago, so yeah. I, I had a lot on my mind. Anyway, um, we, we, got, we had to go and assess the situation. So five days a week, I went out in a convoy and worked with the Iraqi people to determine what their needs were. And, uh, and did you have a translator oh, with you? Yes, yeah, so we were assigned... Um, BBAs, bilingual, bicultural um, advisors. So, yes. And so how... That person worked right with me. How was it working with the Iraqi people? Um, well, uh, wow. Um, the, the first thing, it's, it's a male culture, okay? So it makes it a little bit difficult when you're a nurse, But one, the BAB, so I was really kind of nervous because I I had my uniform on. We did, some troops in the beginning of the war did wear, had the women wear the veils and things. But when I went, we know we were going to wear our uniform, you're going to wear your uniform. And uh, what one of the BAs told me was, they're not going to look at you as a woman. Their, Their eyes are directly on your rank. Don't worry. And... I'm sort of glad he told me that because that kind of, that affected how I, I just kind of behaved like I didn't expect them to be anything different than that. So they, they respected my rank and what we were there to do. And, um, um, but it's very, we had to try to, um, develop relationship with them and trust and that's a, that's really difficult to do just in the United States with people, which is a big part, big part of what I'm going to talk to you about working with women vets and trust and uh, confidentiality and things like that. But um, you have to first, you know, the people back home think you're going to go work and fight the enemy. You know I mean? No, I went over there to work with the people who weren't the enemy. Right. (laughs) It was a very different kind kind (laughs) of war. Some of them might be, and you're supposed to develop a trusting relationship and then, um, you know, try to find out what it is they need and work with them to try to help rebuild it. Well, the first thing we did was go out on a a recon, and it looked like movies I had seen of post-war war to Berlin bombed there was no running water there was electricity only one hour a day the sewer system was blown up the water system was blown up the roads were blown up the buildings were blown up um
0: so are you getting a terrible sense of deja vu as you look now
2: at the Ukraine invasion oh I'm yeah I'm struggling with with this right now yes I am getting very much a deja vu and um And so um, then I began to learn. I began to learn that um, very similar, and we're seeing things in Ukraine, the wealthy and people who could, once the war began, back a few years before I got there, they fled the country. So then they only had like, you know, 25% of their doctors, and same thing with teachers. And most of the people were farmers and uneducated people, shepherds. Um, they just wanted to, you know, do Exist. what they always did. And now they're trying to be made into into soldiers. And um, and most of the men, most of the men had been killed in in the conflicts. So the largest part of the population was women and children and orphans. And um, you, you know, you know, I worked right with it, so I saw it firsthand. It, it's hard to explain, and that's what, what I, you know, we're beginning to see from Ukraine. The women are all going, and the men have to stay. It was um, the same type of thing there. So, at but first how I-
0: unusual for you, not just being a woman, <laughs> but you're a lieutenant colonel, and you're out in in the thick of it. You know, I thought of officers as kind of being.
2: Uh, <laughs> yeah. Back behind the right? Exactly. I was I was in a completely different. Well, I think I told Ray the other day they own they didn't have a hospital at Ramadi. We only had a military hospital at Baghdad. So in Ramadi, all they had was an aid station. So I would think of this because I was I was fifty seven years old, and I used to think about this when we get hurt here, we're going to go to this aid station. Then we'll have too much stuff there, and it was. Only one registered nurse on the entire base. Wow. And it was a male, and he was a captain. And uh, But I went and I met him, and um, I traveled, like I said, five days a week. Um, their weekend over there was Friday, Saturday. Um, so I, I was out Sunday to Thursday. So when I was back on the FOB, behind the wire, on um, uh, uh, Friday and Saturday, I... I was allowed to come to any mass cows or anything like that, so I did get to go and help out with a couple of mass cows but surprisingly, it was an american uh military we were caring for Iraqis, little children and um things like that so that that's just my experience everybody's experience is different but um but I learned a lot, and uh i wrote I wrote three grants what uh, the folks said in Baghdad, uh, led by General Petraeus, they wanted us to write grants. They wanted us to find out, to be with the people, find out what they wanted, what they needed, to try to, to, to help things. And um, we were supposed to then take that information, write a grant, and then try to implement it. So I wrote three grants while I was there. I do not know what to do. I was just a nurse from... uh, (laughs) Well, it sounds like an amazing... Did
0: you develop any personal relationships with the people that you were helping? Or was Um,
2: it... Sort of. It's it's really hard to develop a personal relationship when you know you're going to have to go.
0: Yeah, um,
2: I would imagine. And you can't stay. I had uh, had some very moving experiences. I had uh, a little boy who gave me his card and... uh, it's all in Arabic but my the BBA transferred and he he wanted me to adopt him and uh, I just you know um, you just don't understand that I just can't bring someone from one culture back to the other culture and I'm not gonna get political about a lot of things in this country but um, I just was like this is just sad so a lot of it was really sad so when you're you you, you, you know... I didn't make really. really, I didn't take them back with me. I did in my head Mm -hmm. and in my heart. But um, I had. Yeah. (laughs) Well, so then, tell us about
0: your current project. I just can't imagine you. You're a person that just gives all of yourself all the time. I'm amazing that you have anything left.
2: What made you decide to? Well, what happened when I came back from Iraq? um, I was still in the reserves. Um, and my husband was still on active duty uh, with AR Medcom in Florida. And um, so I came back, and um, I, I didn't tell you this, but when I came back from that tour in Germany in two, 2005, uh, five, around 2006, my mother had written to me that um, the, her only remaining sister, who was living in our, in our grandparents' home, my mother's parents' home, um, was being placed in Menster County Nursing Home, and that the house was going to go up for sale. And so I, and nobody in the family wanted it. And I said, I wrote to her and I said, if you can wait till I come back from Germany, I want it. So I didn't, at that point, I had a big idea that I thought I wanted to do like a, a home for women who, um, you know, like young women who are expecting and, and are estranged from their families or whatever and need a place to live. Um, I had worked for a short time for an organization called the Commission on Economic Opportunity in Troy um, with uh, Karen Gordon, who was the director at that time. And we had talked about, you know, it would be nice to open some type of a home kind of in conjunction with the programs that they do. And um, so I didn't know what I w- That's the big idea I had. I just said I want it. My husband and I, we we bought it. Um, it was empty. I talked my uh, unmarried middle son into moving into the house to please just keep it down. And just, I'm going to interrupt you so you can describe <laughs> for our listeners this house, because I looked it up
0: online, and it's a, a beautiful Victorian row house. Well, yes. And... Row oh, house, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just, if you could just well, describe a, it a little to well, us. Well, the
2: house is um, in extremely good condition, and... Um, my my grandparents, uh, my mo- these are my mother's parents, all right, and um, they were Polish immigrants, um, and you know a lot of stuff has come full circle to me because um, I her parents put her on a boat at 18 years old with seven dollars in her pocket and a and a, a note from a mortician and funeral director in South Troy, and. Um, She went from Poland to, she took a train to Germany. She got on a boat and she came to uh, Ellis Island and from Ellis Island. And I don't know how all of this stuff was communicated back then. She was put on a a train and she arrived in the middle of the night in Troy, New York, um, 18 years old. And um, uh, the, the, the guy who was in charge of the train station or whatever at the time told her to sit right there. Don't go nowhere. It's the middle of the night. And then um, a woman came and got her, and she was a washerwoman when she first got here. She never saw her parents again. She never talked about it. I I started I started thinking, oh, my God, how, why does something like that, how do you do that, okay? And um, so I, I researched a, a lot. I'm not an expert because I don't have a lot of time. <laughs> but anyway, I looked and I, I you know, I... It was right around you know 1906, after World War One but pre World War II, and um, they kept their son but they sent their three daughters to Troy, New York. Um, uh, their last name was Yaz. There was three girls in Troy. Uh, so
0: anyway, they, <laughs> but so this Martishner was somebody they knew and she was somebody that, him
2: up or something. Is that the idea? I think the Catholic Church was involved somehow. Okay. It's my gut feeling. And there were connections, even back there, was some type of connections, and they had the name of this guy, and then he set them up somewhere. She met my my grandfather, who I really don't know much about at all. Was he from uh, Poland, too? He was from Poland. He came through Canada, though, and um, uh, there's uh, we don't know a lot about his, uh, we don't know much as about him as we do about our grandmother. So they meet. There's a Polish-American club in South Troy, all right, two doors down from this house that we're talking about. And they originally lived upstairs over the Polish club. Um, It was a Polish community right there, you know. Um, And uh, they then bought this house in 1920. It was built in the late 1800s, like 1898, something like that. They bought this house in South Troy. So when the pandemic hit, and COVID hit, and every I said to myself, and then my mother's still alive, she's 96 and a half, and um. She uh, lives in Lansingburg. And I said to my mother, How in God's name did they get through the first pandemic? How in God's name did they buy a house during, you know, in the 20s, just before the depression hit? And how can it, 100 years later, we still have it, okay? Although I have donated it to the business, okay? And uh, she said, Oh, they. From what I remember, you know, they went to the savings and loan, and um, they got the money for the house. So, like, in 1920, everything was kind of good. But then the Depression came, and then my grandfather had a stroke, and they had nine children in this house. And uh, it was never appraised as a two-family, although it could be, all right? Um, It was always um, appraised, assessed, or whatever, from the city as a one-family home. And they... um, My 13-year-old uncle went to work back then, and then the girls uh, were taken out of high school, just the two two of the older ones, and they worked in Cluett and Peabody Factory in Troy, and um, they supported the family. Uh, My grandfather uh, died before I was born. I think it was only in his 60s when he passed away. Um, like my own husband, which we didn't get to that. But anyway, he, um, so my uncle got a job in a lumber yard and became a, a, an unbelievable carpenter and he was an unbelievable gardener. But that house is so structurally well built. I, I he's done a lot of work in that house. And so I knew that that house was, uh, I didn't want to just see it Crumble or well, it just be has a vacant. charm
0: to it. It's got the original door, the wooden right? door, yeah. and you can yeah. see there are like mantelpieces. And, and, yeah. it's
2: literally- and so, um, I decided that I I would try, I would see if I can open some type of a home, you know. So, how did I settle on women vets? What happened when I came back from Iraq, um, and I, I was uh. Dividing, I look. I think Obama was in office uh, from 2008 to. <laughs> I was trying to figure this up this point, Right, so four years goes to 12, goes to 16. Is that the number? I think those are the years. Yeah, right. Well, Michelle, Michelle Obama was behind this. Uh, v the Department of VA uh, homeless provider grant and per diem program. This was this was she was a big part of this, and I. Um, I didn't know too much about it. OK, I, I had just come back from Iraq. I then was only back for a short time, and I went to Little Rock, Arkansas, to do case management for two years. All of this stuff kind of melds together. because So I come back, and I'm, I'm, I'm a reservist for like six months or so again. And um, I have um, very dear friends that work for the foundation of the New York State Nurses Association in Guilderland and um, very close to them. One was Catherine Welch. And they, um, Catherine had written to me when I was in Iraq and um, she, and when I was in Germany. And she told me there was a woman um, One of the the doctorate of nurses, of nursing nurses at the foundation who had gotten a a position with an organization called the Governor's Institute, which was helping people write grants for the VA. And she says, I think I got something perfect for you. And so um, I met with her um, and I took two trainings through the, through the VA and, um, I started doing just like what I did in Iraq and when I do go into school, I started writing up my um uh answering all the questions in the grant. That's what my focus was. The measurable objectives and how you were gonna carry them out and blah blah blah. And um then I got put on active duty to go to Arkansas, Little Rock, Arkansas. And at the same exact time while all this was going on, um Instead of going back to the midwifery program that I had started, my second midwifery program, I decided, because they started a doctoral program for nurses at Russell Sage while I was away, that I um, sent an application to Russell Sage, and I got accepted into their doctoral program. Well, I was a poor girl from Troy, and all my life, I wanted to go to Russell's Age College. (laughs) It's a beautiful (laughs) college, isn't it? (laughs) And so here I was now, an older lady. But I, um, so I got accepted into the doctoral program. So all of this is in... Connected because it's really kind of funny. So I had to work on a thesis. What was I going to do with my thesis? And then I had to think about um, what did you do for your thesis? Well, it got influenced by what I was doing with the nurses in Gilderland at the foundation. So I took the training and I said, okay, we. Oh, and I learned about this new program. And I said, okay, I could we could do this house for women vets. Maybe that's what I should do because now I I I've been. To war and everything else, I certainly can. I certainly understand vets, and I understand women. And um, and then I went to Arkansas and I worked with soldiers who were going to go to war and soldiers who were coming home from war. Well, what are they doing when they come off active duty? They're transitioning. These people were transitioning, and they had to transition to the VA. So I learned a lot. Okay, and um, so anyway, I. Wrote the, I wrote the grant around the same time that the folks at Guardian House had or had written their grant, but I didn't know. I was a nurse and active duty. I didn't know that I had to have tax exempt and a not-for-profit status. I didn't have it. I wanted to see if it was a legitimate thing that I could do, but I learned the hard way. There's all kinds of things you have to do. So I wasn't. I I I wasn't able to submit my grant. Okay. So then what happens? So then what happens is I get sent to Arkansas. And then what happens in 2010 is my husband has an unfortunate medical event in Florida and um, and <laughs> ends up um, having, ends up being a full code, ends up um, in ICU. We think he's going to pass away. And I go to, to Florida. Now he's going to, he's working on this project with me too. So I fly from Arkansas to to Florida. He, he rallies, but he is, he has a feeding tube. He's on oxygen, but believe me, he, you wouldn't even know because he would cover up the, the feeding tube during the day. And, um, he ought to use his oxygen if he needed it. He was, he was like a real trooper. But he ended up going into um, what's the transitional unit, a medical hold unit. Okay, So what that means is if you become sick or injured on active duty. So it doesn't matter whether you're, you're shot in Iraq or you had a motorcycle cru- uh, accident at Fort Drum or you develop cancer. It doesn't matter. Whatever happens to you medically while you are on active duty, okay, you, go into the, you, you are transferred into um, a medical unit for, to, de- to determine a whole thing that's like on a schematic. One, they heal you, and you return to duty. The second one is they can't heal you, and they medically retire you. This process takes too long. Um, but it is supposed to only last 24 months, okay? And, you know, when it works, it works very well, and when things don't work, they don't work well. And this was when I really started to learn about what was involved um, with soldiers coming off active duty and who um, then need to transition to the VA. So what happens sometimes is when you enter that medical unit, you're not at home you're at the at the base that you're you're, you know at Fort Sam in San Antonio or uh, you know Fort Bragg in North Carolina Uh, wherever you are in the United States that's where it starts your family back home are like I want you back you know I want to take you to Dr. Smith who's taking care of us our whole life or whatever so there becomes a lot of pressure on the soldier whether it's from parents or spouse or boyfriend or girlfriend or or whatever and um and the soldiers who, and and you, yeah, yeah, one of the questions, like if you want to ask why we were involved in this, why he's involved in it as a Vietnam is that we have a deep desire to continue to serve. I mean, this is all we ever did, and we were trained all the time, and then all of a sudden your service is over, okay? So it's the same thing when a soldier gets hurt. I, I, what am I supposed to do now, okay? I'm just supposed to sit and go for doctor's appointments, all right? And so what a lot of them do is they get frustrated, and they walk away. Means they voluntarily leave the service. They don't get the military documentation that they need. They don't get the military documentation that says you were medically discharged. Is that what happened to your husband? My husband died waiting for the letter. Oh, gosh. Um, I'm sorry. But... That's okay, but i learned I learned what happens in this process, okay, and how slow it is now. we were much older, and we were patient, okay, but um younger people they can fall through the cracks, they can walk away, so you have the option. they kept giving my husband the option that he could just you know he was he had enough years to get a retirement just just walk away. you got your retirement well, no um. You're not He can't go back to work, okay, and he's not old enough for Social Securities, he's not old enough for Medicare, um, TRICARE, when you're in the gray area, you got to pay a copay for, uh, a large copay, and um, until you turn... Uh, 65 and then you get TRICARE for life it's very complicated okay so but we were I we knew I started I really learned this stuff through all the different experiences that I had so um, we we waited it out um, and uh, so he never he, he he died while on active duty because he, he was at 27 months but in reality at 24 months he um, which is very interesting because the VA sets the 24 month limit on the transition housing. Okay, there's something about that 24 month limit. And then you have to, you know, it, it, it's supposed to be over, but he was still in at 27 months. And by that point, he was really, really ill, and he passed away on active duty. So I had the lived experience, um, I had the nursing experience, I had the house. Uh, I'm a woman veteran myself. Um, so, and I can't, you know, you become like a workaholic, you can't stop working. So I came back and I got my doctorate and, oh, so my thesis was my thesis. um, Once I decided that the house was going to be for women vets, which then became my target population, I decided that, um, I, I would, I would try to do my thesis, which needed to be about health, but it would involve women vets. So I came up with this Qualitative study of five questions. I can't remember the exact questions anymore, but the, the title is real, real long. It's The Lived Experience of Accessing Healthcare for the Female Veteran Who's Been Without a Permanent Residence for at least one month during the 12 months. It had to be that specific because what is your definition of someone who hasn't, you know, has been homeless, okay? So I wasn't quite sure where I was going to find them. Because people aren't going to, you know, some, some people are on the side of the road saying they're homeless, give me money. But most people are embarrassed. They're, they'll live in their car. They'll live on their friend's couch. They don't want you to. They're proud. They don't want to say that they're homeless, okay? So where am I going to find these people? They're going to volunteer to talk to me. So I'm back right to that thing where i got to get trust again. Somebody's got to trust me that they'll talk so to me. So tell us about that because you brought well, up trust I, before when yeah, you were yeah, in Iraq. So I um, I. Got involved with a group that does a woman veteran retreat at, uh, at Weawaka in Lake George. And they're called the Creative Healing Connections. They're out of Saranac Lake. And they started doing a woman veteran retreat at Weawaka. And I started to go. And at the first retreat, we sat in a little group session. And we all kind of introduced ourselves to each other. And two of the women self-identified as being homeless. And I was like, whoa. Um, that was my first um, um, experience, hearing somebody say that or, or start to tell their story. So I went back to Russell Sage and the IRB and all of that, had to write up a proposal. But I said, maybe I can find them at the retreat. So um, that's where I went first. It's a big, long process, I don't want to tell you, but I went to the retreat and um, and I'm all ready to do my interviews at, the, at this. They did two retreats that year, one week apart, and I was going to do my interviews at both retreats at the end if I could find someone who was who would fit my criteria. So I walked in, and there was one of the women from the first retreat with the T-shirt on that said Guardian House. So I knew, right off, okay. So I, I went up to her, and. You know, she's hugging me, remembers me from the other retreat. I said, can I talk to you for a minute? And so I did. And she said, well, I have somebody with me. I said, well, it, you know, so we asked and she's And the two of them agreed to be interviewed because they fit my criteria. And from that, they said, there's another woman who wants to come next week to the retreat, but she doesn't have any transportation. And she does. I said, well, what if I come and pick her up and take her to the retreat? So I did. I took the third woman to the retreat. And then I... um Realized that there were a a good number of women at the guardian house. And so I got permission from uh, Boston Spa and the folks in charge of um, the, the program there. And I went into the house and gave them my little spiel. And there were the three that I already interviewed. Now, the foundation of the New York State Nurses Association Gilderland gave me a grant and I could pay them for their interviews and bring snacks. So that was a real incentive too. So they, uh, the other women agreed to interview with me. So I interviewed all of the first residents at Guardian House, and they were in my research study at Rosal Sage. So I learned, and so I learned a lot, and I learned more about the housing. Now, on the side note, I have the house that I'm trying to open, all right? And um, so... Oh, God. So
0: anyway... So I So you've yeah. named this house after your husband. Correct. Christopher house. So I right. love this idea because his name, there's somebody you love. Your grandparents lived there. Right. People you loved. And there are pictures on your website. I guess they must be your uncles or maybe yeah. great uncles. My,
2: un- my uncles. Yeah. My we're uncles. Yeah. all in
0: military service old, and grew and my up father, in that house. And my father. And, yeah. And, he was and so, to my so this and house almost has this already a sense of love and caring
2: and people who were involved in the military. Right. But then, so my husband passed away in 2012. I graduated from Russell Sage. By the way, I used my GI Bill for part of the the tuition, not all of it. Um, And um, I graduated, I think, around 2015. And then I had to—I um, had gotten a New York State scholarship along with my GI bills, so I had to um, be an adjunct professor. And during the course of being an adjunct professor, um, I became involved with mental health and, instead of OB, which was really my what I, you know, what I had changed at this point. So um, I ended up bringing student nurses from Russell Sage to the VA hospital for their clinicals, and uh, so um, I really got to know the VA hospital. Um I just want to uh piggyback on something that uh Ray said you know in the very beginning at the v a um it was it was predominantly men it it's 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 a hard um way of thinking to get rid of because it's kind of embedded in your mind. You think of the patients at the v a as men veterans as combat war veterans okay um and uh so the women, oh, they were like, you know, I didn't do anything special. I, you know, I'm not, I didn't feel comfortable going to the VA, all right? And um, the ones that did go to the VA, um, people wouldn't treat them as if they were vetted. They would say, are you so-and-so's wife? And you'd have to say, well, no, I'm a veteran, you know. Oh, I'm here for my appointment. Oh, gosh. And they would kind of look at you. But a lot of that has changed, Okay, I would say, like, within the last 10 years, the VA has has tried very, very hard and, and done very well at um, uh, being more accommodating to women and opening women veteran units. And so what they started at the VA was a women's group, um, and I started to go to that, all right, and um, met a lot of people through that. But... Um, <sighs> What else was I going to say? Ask me a question. Well, uh, yeah, <laughs> I,
0: would, I would like to hear to, is about to, transition, and Raymond, you can speak yes. to this too, because it seems like, as you were saying, when you're in the military, you're all in, and you're used to a certain, I don't know, level of not just commitment, but I would think activity, and then suddenly you're not. And so I don't know what your transition was like coming home from Vietnam or what your transition was like, but these are the people you're trying to help, right? The people that are coming out of a military experience and haven't really found their way in, in the civilian life. I don't know if you have well, any— Well, to
1: piggyback on what uh, Colonel Rem was just saying, uh, there have been women involved in war uh, going back before our revolution uh You hear about more in the Civil War where some of the wives were traveling with the troops mm-hmm. to care for them or do their husband's laundry or whatever uh, it happened in the Revolutionary War. Women have always been involved, but they've always been in the background uh, In Vietnam, I saw nurses, but nurses were officers, and I was not an officer, so. You don't really get together at all. Uh, we saw uh, Red Cross workers, which we call donut dollies, and you, there were some other women volunteers. Uh, you didn't see women there, but as time went on, and then Congress finally did something, women weren't allowed in combat. but uh, women started taking over some of the jobs that the men were doing, not combat jobs. They were truck drivers. They were mechanics. They were whatever. But since Vietnam, all our combat situations have been where you don't know where the enemy is. And typically... uh, Almost in the beginning of our war in Iraq, we had that—I uh, don't remember her name. Uh, she was a truck driver, and her convoy got ambushed. She became a POW. You're not a com- uh, you know a combat-armed person, but you're in the middle of everything. You're still You never know where the enemy is and what's going on. And the military and the VA didn't get into that mindset at that point or going forward. And it's gradually coming in. Uh, I grew up in New York City. I was uh, on Long Island. And when we were going to move, I, uh, my wife, an avid reader, had a bunch of books that we didn't want to transport with us that I tried to donate to the VA that figuring it was the type of book that another woman would like to read. And when I tried to go to the uh, the women's floor on the uh, VA hospital in Northport, they said, We don't want them. You have to bring them downstairs that everybody can get to them. It's very touchy because of the sexual situation, the difference between men and women. And uh, women are definitely different than men, not just sexually, but mentally and everything else. And we've got to protect them in some cases. So it's a gradual thing, and myself getting involved in uh, the VFW and uh, part of the VFW is, uh, or one of our slogans is, no one does more for veterans. uh, The VFW demands that uh, each VFW post has a what they call a relief fund. And of all the different veterans' organizations, the VFW uh, is very strict in how you can spend the money you get in in donations. Uh, So
0: hearing money makes me think we should also ask you, Chris, about the funding for your... Christopher House, um, you know, in case there are people listening that want to donate or what you're depending on to keep this project going.
2: Um, to, to keep ourselves operational. Um, but can I just say one thing before I do Oh, that? sure. But bring me back to that. Okay. If I, if I blank again. <laughs> I just want to say, listening to what um, Ray said, because I had some uh, statistics here. Currently, women make up 14% of the military. All right. So there's they're definitely still in the minority. <laughs> all right. Um, like when I went to Iraq, there were not very you know, there there probably was that same percentage of us on that base. Um and the so and then the other thing that I just wanted to, to point out on that note, that's in the military. In the in the VA or in the United States, they say there's two hundred million vets in the United States. Two million of them are women vets, but seven hundred and twenty-nine thousand Nine hundred and eighty-six are enrolled in the VA. That leaves one million two hundred and seventy thousand and fourteen women vets in the United States who are not enrolled in the VA because so why? of that tra- why is because that? of that tradition that we were talking about at the beginning so more, that, well that we're trying I to change I see. is that they, they didn't have good experiences when they went to the VA. Not because of the health care, not because they felt it, it wasn't their place. There were all these men who had been to war, and even though some of the women may have been to war, they still didn't feel that they did what the men did because we were in roles of of support, of nursing, and, and things like that. You know,
1: some of the men feel. So we're the still same in a minority, way.
2: I guess, in the VA, is I'm, what I.
1: I know myself. Uh, although I'm a combat vet and I've got a Purple Heart and whatever, the service I did in Vietnam was not like the typical uh, infantry person, the typical artillery person, the typical cavalry person, because-
0: So you're saying there's like a hierarchy? Not a a hierarchy,
1: it's what you did. It's your job, what your job was. Uh, About, I think it's 10 or 15% of the people in the military, Uh, in a combat situation, are combatants. The rest of them are supplying those combatants with what they need. Your truck drivers, your cooks, uh, your supply people, whatever. I only spent two months in the field with my combat unit. The rest of the time, I was an instructor, a teacher, to our troops, trying to get them better. I can't equate, sometimes, or I'm conflicted about it, uh, my service as compared to somebody that was an infantryman slopping around rice paddies or the uh, jungles or whatever as compared to myself. Who's more, I hate to say it, worthy?
2: That's the
0: the hierarchy, the sense of one being more worthwhile of a a job than another.
1: So um, I've been a little bit conflicted with that, but when you're in the military, you do what you're told to do. What difference does it make? Right. Coming back, and particularly the number of years that I've been in with the VFW because I find they're one of the more active veterans organizations, you find it doesn't make any difference. You served. You did what you were told to do. They're my brothers and sisters. Women need help. They're my sisters. We help doesn't make any difference. They serve this country honorably. Give them the respect they deserve and the services they need when they need them.
2: And a lot of the women don't step forward. And that came out in my thesis uh, findings was they did not feel worthy. it, it's hard. I probably it's something hard to explain. He he explained it pretty yeah, good to you. Yeah, they didn't but feel they, entitled they, they, to it. They don't it. entitled. They don't feel they don't feel worthy. I, that I didn't do anything special, so I don't belong there. So how? So do what you? happened was the Affordable Care Act. So the Affordable Care Act came on the horizon, and nurses, I found uh, in my studies, stopped asking the question when people came into the emergency room. And instead of saying, are you a veteran? You know, and this is a stranger you're looking at. You might not say, but if you say, did you ever serve in the military? Oh, yeah, I served in the military once a lot. Aha, you served in the military? Um, so then they, if the person is down and out and looks like they really need help and they call in the social worker, that's how they start. Have you ever served in the military? And from that question, you find out that they did. Um, they don't know where their DD-214 is. They're one of those one million whatever. I'm just talking about women right now. There's men too, um, more in number than the women. But they, they're one of those that never went to the VA, never enrolled, never uh haven't talked about their service, haven't felt worthy, don't bring any attention to themselves. Okay. So now all of a sudden they're in hard times. Okay. Um, and perhaps they're living in their car. All right. And I'll just take extracts from the stories that I put into my thesis. Okay. And they go in and, um, they're with somebody else who's sick, but they're standing over to the side and the nurse goes, You don't look good. Are you okay? And she, you know, doesn't say much, and then she says, Well, you know, I haven't been feeling good or eating good, right? And, you know, don't lost my house and my husband walked away, or and then all of a sudden, next thing you know, they they're getting connected with social workers who then connect them with the VA. So a lot of the women who come into my house may not be VA-enrolled. They're not veteran. coming through
0: some bureaucratic
2: channel. Right, so that's one it's channel that... like a nurse that could be, a conduit right. to find so so help for find, them. So yes, so they're going to come from different channels. Some are going to absolutely already be in the system with the VA and, they're, and they've got their VA card, okay, and they're enrolled. Others are going to be they never went there. So what is the first thing that I'm, I'm going to do? Um, if they have, um, some of them um, may have uh, social security, some of them may have a small paying job, some of them may have nothing, right? Some of them may have some savings. Okay, so the first thing they're, that they're going to do is they're going to come in and they're going to be referred to me and they're going to sit down and they're going to talk to me and I'm going to find out what their situation is. Uh, Some of them are going to have the DD-214. Some aren't going to have the DD-214. This is, what is this? The The DD-214 is what you have to have to bring to the Department of VA to be determined to be a Department of VA certified veteran. I see. Okay. Okay. And a DD-214, and this might shock you, means that you've had 180 consecutive days on active duty. Not broken up days, you got to have a full 180 days. You better make it to 181 to be sure that it doesn't come out looking like it's 179 or you don't get your DD 214. And that brings me into another whole area that I have a very, very soft spot in my heart for, and that's the Army Reserve and the National Guard. Because I came from the Army Reserve and went on active duty. And we have tons of people in our communities, so are citizen soldiers, who are ready to go and serve their country and do whatever they, they're told to do, like said. On active said. duty. Yep. Yeah. In the, and in the reserve too. Whatever they're told that they have to do, and they're ready to go on active duty, and um, they get they get deployed just short of 180 days. So, <laughs> so then they, they don't get these benefits So they later. may not be entitled to the benefits. So you have to have um, a DG 214. Currently, you have to have an honorable discharge or a less than honorable discharge, but you cannot have a dishonorable discharge. There's a whole other campaign going on all the way up in Washington, D.C., been going on for a long time to fight for the rights of those who may have received a dishonorable discharge because they were, they had a mental health crisis or whatever the issue was, and they got in trouble.
1: That's a whole nother ball That's
2: of wax. That's a whole nother okay. ball of well, wax. we'll leave
0: that ball of wax over here, because okay. what I want to <laughs> just focus so on. So you want to
2: focus on how we're going to say, so what we do to get the money that we need to survive is, I'm entitled to ask them for, by HUD, by HUD standards, 30% of their income for rent. So for instance... My my one lady has has an income. I take thirty percent, and that's her rent. Okay, um, they are also when more than one comes into the house, um, and and all the mostly all the VA homes are patterned the same way. I took the training twice. Okay, so they'll also contribute approximately fifty to one hundred dollars, depending on the mix and amount of money they have toward food. In the meantime, I've gotten all kinds of donations of, um, staple food, you know, the macaroni and the rice and the cereal and the canned goods. And all. My cupboard is full. I can show you a picture. And, uh, so basically what they will do is when they're all together, um, this is group living and mine is a community house, all right, a community residence. And so they will, um, develop their menu. From the menu, we'll develop the, the shopping list. And then because I, I can't get food stamps as an organization, but they could, if they're eligible, get SNAP, okay? Um, they, they can purchase, one will get the milk products, one will get the meat, one will get the vegetables, one will get the bread, and we'll rotate all right? And on um, those will be five days a week meals. They'll be pretty structured. One person will cook, one person will clean. Um, they'll have duties and then they can rotate them. And one person may want to cook all the time. They might've been a cook, who knows? So, uh, it all has to be worked up with trust and in a relationship. You're building a relationship here. So so
0: you're picturing kind of an almost family atmosphere. These women correct. are living together. And we're
2: all women vets, and we share
0: And that. you're going to be kind of hands-on. I'm the case manager. Yeah, so you'll be aware of each one of their right. separate stories and help them. The right. ultimate goal is to get them to become stable enough and self-sufficient enough that they can then... That's strike one. out
2: on their own. That that is that is one part, okay. And I was very um, not as educated as I was after I did my thesis, and that was my when I when you put out what your questions are of what you you know you want you think you're going to find, um, it always is kind of like in a question or whatever. But what I found was not what I expected. I found that the women were older. They were 40 and 50. They weren't 21 or 22. Their service was 20 years ago, not during wartime. they um, It was not what I expected. And, so this um, has been haunting
0: them and staying with them, even though they were discharged decades before.
2: Right. Now they find them, now either through divorce or... Um, uh, unforeseen circumstances. Some unforeseen circumstances, thank you. Um, some have had alcohol and drug problems, but then recovered, okay? But their lives now are, okay, so, um, but they were older. And so um, I re-looked at, in my, and this is my personal philosophy for my house, I re-looked at Okay, we're going to bring them in and I'm going to help them with all this stuff and we're going to pull them up by their bootstraps and in 24 months they're going to be ready to move into their own apartment. Well, you know, that that could very well be part of it. But then COVID hit and then you know, now we're going into a housing crisis and now we might be looking at a recession or whatever. And the, the ability to do that's going to be really hard because the primary reasons that women are is under employment or unemployment, a lack of an affordable raise of affordable wage, and a lack of affordable housing. Those are the big barriers for women, all right? So I, I decided not to go with becoming a transitional housing. And I decided that I was going to go and be supportive housing because transitional housing puts a time limit on things and supportive housing doesn't. Oh, that's wonderful. So So they can stay as long as they need. So if they if they can pay the rent and they can help cook and they can work we can live together without you know in harmony um then they can stay if
1: necessary
2: they can stay if um if they stay with me for a temporary period of time i'm going to try to help them to save money to get ready to to move into that next stage so then that's when you would have the supportive apartment when they're ready for the the next stage to move into um An apartment, perhaps, but some folks uh, might never reach that. And the best that they can do is to live in in a supportive community residence. And what is what is nice about our house is that we all are we all are women veterans, so we share that commonality, and um, it is like family. Uh, it is Being in the military was like having a second family. And when you retire, you've lost that family. And um, I found my new family with veterans. And uh, it's just, uh, to me, it's, it's just like a natural progression that I move from everything that I've done to not share with what I have. I have this house, okay? And um, so we will pay the bills with 30%. From um, their rent, a donation toward the food, and uh, donations outside donations donations from organizations, and um, any extra money that we might be eligible for from the VA. But we are not, um, I'm not in that system uh, right now for a lot of different reasons, Um, because when that grant was written that I talked about way back at the Mm -hmm. beginning, um, they never offered capital money again. They only offered capital money once, Mm -hmm. and then, then subsequently they give extra money operationally per month per resident to the ones who got the capital. Then a couple about a year or two ago, that changed. I think with the the pandemic and everything, and now they are you can uh, submit to be you know become uh, housing associated with them. But um, right now, um, I am I'm on my own. Okay, and although um, I'm working with the Albany Housing Coalition, I met a great guy. Um, Larry DiPaolo, and he, um, they have extra emergency money right now, okay? So it's not, I just got uh, this woman's first month rent and security covered, but that's it. I don't get the money every month extra. So starting next month, she'll just be on her own to pay her rent. And then my feeling is that on these fixed incomes that a lot of these people are on, um, that it then gives them we only have one electricity bill we only have one water bill we have one television we you know we have one spectrum bill and they then can take that rest of their money and they can either they can save it or to go to the movies if they want to, okay, <laughs> or whatever. Some of them have cars, some of them don't have yeah. cars, um, but they can start to enjoy life a little bit and you know, save some money too. So I'm going to try to work with financial management with them and get an idea of where they want to go, whether they want to stay or whether they want to move on. I don't know what to expect.
1: Let's and, uh, also bring up that your Christopher house will take in women veterans that have children right the right. VA does not if a veteran goes to one of the veterans houses to help or that they need help they can't keep their children
0: yeah I, that's what I found stunning about the story we did that there were women that would rather and I understand that as a mother live in a car (laughs) then give up their children so to offer that
2: but I'm not sure if that has to do with the um, transitional money versus supportive money see where it gets complicated yeah I'm not sure if it has to do with that or if it has to do with the building uh itself also that is separate so I don't know because um I, I really don't know for sure yeah. where that comes from. Well, I think but that I always plan to allow them to to bring a child if they want to. So I mean, I only have I only have four bedrooms, five adult beds, one youth bed, and or so it can be either five adult women, or three to four women and or two to three children. I don't know what I don't know what the mix is going to be. Oh, I know. Well,
0: from what I've heard. Whoever those women are, are going to be very lucky to be living in your house. We've gone way over our time because this has been so fascinating. (laughs) Are there any closing thoughts either of you would like to leave us with? I've just learned so much and been moved by both of your stories.
1: Well, one of the things, I don't know if I expressed it before anybody who hasn't been in the military can't imagine. Uh, what it's like, and it's even worse if you're you've been in combat. You can't grasp what can go on, where you can have someone next to you one minute and they're gone the next, and some of the relationships that you don't want to develop because here today, gone tomorrow, maybe. Uh, we need more for this government to support our people in the military, in the police department, in the fire department, and not just uh, just use the words "thank you for your service," because it takes more than that in some cases. Uh, one of the things I don't know, well, it's in, in my mind, I don't know if it's true, uh, as Colonel Rem said, uh, she's finding most of the female veterans are older, or well, what about the young female soldier, sailor, whatever, that all of a sudden gets pregnant and gets forced out, and the mindset behind it. The big thing that I learned when I first, even before I got involved with the Christopher House, is that, oh, what about the women with children? What do you mean you can't bring them in? It's mind-blowing.
0: It is. It is. You have
2: any thoughts Not. to leave us with?
0: No, oh, I think that's well. Thank you for <laughs> what you're doing. I just think it's remarkable. It I thank is. You.
2: I just want. I just thought of one thing I was going to no. say while he was talking. Um, uh, there is no um, prior to Christopher House. There has been no. Housing for women veterans in the capital district in Albany, Schenectady, or Troy, and I guess uh, I was thinking of how I spoke up about uh, Larry at the Albany Housing Coalition. So I'm working closely with them, but um, we are the only house in the you know in the in the urban area, and Guardian House is in Boston Spa in the rural areas of the of north of here. So. Um, I, I guess I just wanted to point that out. I heard some talk about different organizations. I heard that the the Dwyer program may may expand. They Albany and Schenectady don't even have the peer-to-peer programs like what they have in Munster County and Saratoga. So I'm um, just going to have four to five women. There, I think there's a great need out there. There's a need for everybody. There's a need in Troy. There's a need in, in Boston Spa. There's a need... Everywhere, so um, I guess that's just
1: across the country. That right. So,
2: and just that
0: as an individual, you're stepping up to fill that need. We tend to think, as you were saying, that the government will take care of people who have served, but well, finding
1: out otherwise is one of the mindsets. Uh, is that, and it happened to me. You're in the military the military is taking care of you. You're told what to do, you're getting your three meals a day, Uh, you're getting your clothing, you're getting your needs met, and you're doing whatever work that the military tells you to do. But then you get out. And I know today, uh, at least with Fort Drum, and some of our uh, local representatives are trying and the VA is trying to transition our troops in Fort Drum and get them into the system for support if they need it before they get out. So that they don't have a gap. That, That gap. Okay. Now what do I do?
0: Yeah. The transition, I think, would be hard. But what's even more troubling is what you've brought up. It isn't just a transition phase for a lot of these veterans. It's a lifetime. It's a lifetime,
2: (laughs) yes. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you both.
2: You're welcome.
1: You're welcome.